You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Dogs see ghosts. They see disease floating down the street like fog. They hear and smell the unimaginable. Yet dogs are indifferent to such things because they are simply part of their perceived world. Human beings don't gasp at flowers or think about the insect that lands on their feet. We accept what we know when we encounter it and go on with our lives. At the same time, when we open a bottle of milk that has gone bad, pure instinct makes us rear back in disgust and smelling the rotten snub. It wasn't the dog's senses that now said, run, run, get away. It was purely survival instinct. Life and death do not mix. They could never dance together because both of them would insist on leading. They coexist only because they are mutually dependent. In truth, they despise each other, as the night despises the day and vice versa. If they were human siblings, they would have killed each other in the cradle. Each has its own distinctive odor. Everything alive has a warm, ripe scent, organic, ongoing. Death's aroma is cold and unchanging. Stuart Parrish smelled of both. That was impossible, according to everything Pilate had ever been taught or experienced in life. The dog had not recognized the odor earlier because it did not exist, or rather it should not have existed any more than cold fire or hot ice should exist. Nothing could be alive and dead at the same time, but Stuart Parrish was. Pilate knew now that an entity spelling of both was potentially the most dangerous thing he had ever encountered. Jonathan Carroll is the author of The Wooden Sea, The Land of Laughs, Black Cocktail, White Apples, and Glass Soup. His new novel is The Ghost in Love. Thank you for joining me, Jonathan. Oh, you're welcome. Well, that sounds like a recipe, and cooking plays a big part in this book, doesn't it? Well, you know, the thing is that the people who have read the book say to me, oh, you must be, you know, wild in the kitchen and all this stuff, and the and the and the, the true answer to that is I'm not much of a food guy, so for this book I had to do a lot of research to find out from santoku knives to the re- best kind of cayenne pepper to use in certain recipes. It was all kind of Greek to me to, when I began it. Your novel is a very interesting combination of mundane unreality. You have elements that are completely fantastical, yet you render them with this very pragmatic and down-to-earth eye. Could you talk about how you develop that perspective? You know, the thing is that, that, that my books, for, for many people, have always been very hard to categorize because they have all these different tropes in them. They'll, they have a little bit of, of realism. They have a little bit of fantasy. They have a little bit of, of, of romance and this and that. And people want their books straight. It's like, you know, when you drink coffee, you want to drink it black. But in my case, I'm, I'm like, you know, the, those bizarre cappuccino, frappuccino, undecinos from Starbucks that have 25 different kinds of things in them. And for some people, they're, they're, to, to extend the analogy, it's just too rich. They say, you know, is it, is it this kind of book or is it a that kind of book? And I say, it, it's, it's all those things. Usually when I write a book, I start out thinking realistically. And I always say that it's... My my books are like the, that moment in an airplane when you feel that you can't tell if you're on the ground or you've just taken off. You know, that's kind of in-between space. It's kind of weightless but not. And usually the books start off very realistically and then they take off into other worlds. You know, I feel like there are 
two Jonathan Carrolls. The gentleman I'm talking to now who's written 14 novels of fiction. And I, there's another Jonathan Carroll who's written 14 books of psychological insight into the human mind. <laughs> and, and, and I'm wondering, do you have any psychological training, formal psychological training? No, but I'm very curious about that. I mean, I was a school teacher for many years, and if that's not a, a psychological practice, I don't know. You're not a, a, a decent teacher is not just trying to convey information. They're dealing with personalities and 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 what needs to be done today because Harry's not feeling so happy about his parents divorcing or Susie's brother died or whatever it is. So you you kind of do psychology on the spot when you're in the classroom, and and I think that just carried over into the books. Let, one of the, the notions uh, uh, of this book is ghosts. This is something you've used in the past, but you have a, a really interesting notion of ghosts in this book um, because it, it seems to me that we always think of haunting has two very distinct meanings. Uh, on one hand, there's the kind of Halloween meaning, spirits of the dead and that we can't see, you know, and filmed in some kind of a cheesy special effect. A- and then there's the idea of ghosts uh, of our past mistakes that haunt us. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that that's, I, I, I much prefer that that second one because it, even taking out the cheese factor, I mean, the, the kind of detachment from, from, from some spooky creature that's two feet off the ground and laughing deep in its throat has nothing to do with my experience and, and, and I wouldn't know what to do if I were confronted with it. But I, I would have a pretty tough time being confronted with my past mistakes or my past lives, so to say, because one of the things that, that, that I'm concerned with in this book is what what comprises our life today? Is it just our life today, or is it what's coming in the future, or is it what's in the past, or is it a combination of all those things? And I think that one of the reasons why people are, are often confused or unhappy is because they can't find the balance between the past, the present, the future, the or, or who's going to lead. So, for example, you, you do something and you, you make a mistake and you go, damn it, how, how did I end up there? Well, one of the things that I premise in this book is you didn't. Your 22-year-old self did, who just happens to be the one who's, who's in charge today. And I'm being led around by the nose by my 22-year-old self. It's, it's more complex than that, but I, I really do think that a lot of the thing, decisions and mistakes and, and maybe good things that we do in our lives are not decided by the person who's living in this moment. It's decided by other selves, our other selves, at different times in our lives. This notion of a, a splintered life, a splintered self, is central to this novel. And actually, I think we've encountered this a little bit before in Black Cocktail and some of some of your other books. Uh, you've developed it to its, I think, most sophisticated state I, I've, I've ever seen. Uh, could you talk a little bit about wh- when you started to conceive of this book, did you just take off with the characters or did you have this idea of the splintered life in your mind before you started writing? I, whenever I write a book, I, I you know, this is kind of a old cliche, but I, I think that writers are divided into two categories, overly simplified. Those who know exactly what they're going to do from page one to the end, and they just fill in the blanks. And then the other ones who have no idea what's coming, and I'm one of those guys. So in that sense, I love um, 1930s and 40s screwball comedies. I've, you know, Preston Sturgis is one of my heroes, and films like Sullivan's Travels and Palm Beach Stories are written on my heart. And, and 
when I was in Hollywood in the 90s writing films, I kept saying to producers, can I write a screwball comedy? And they always said, no. So I said, okay, I'm going to take my ball and go home and write a book that's a screwball comedy. And that was the original premise of this book, which the, 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 the classic screwball comedy is, is the love triangle. There's a man, a woman, and another man, or another woman, or whatever it is. And I thought, okay, I'm going to start with that, but my thing is going to be a man, a woman, and a ghost. And the ghost is the ghost of the man. And originally, the man was going to be a kind of creep that the ghost was going to help to become a better person. But then that was less interesting than, hopefully, than what I came up with, which was uh, much more complex than that. Uh, certainly more complex. One of the things that your books turn on are, are analogies and, and metaphors. You use this. Could you talk about that, using analogy and metaphor a, as a literary device? I think that, that my favorite books are the ones... I, I, I used to say to my students, you know that you're reading a good book when you're reading it slowly and you're marking passages. You know, you... oh this is great, I've got to remember this, or I've got to write this down in a, in a, in a notebook somewhere where I keep the passages I like. And, and the thing is that when I'm writing, you know, I would like to be able to write the kind of stuff that somebody would say, ooh, that's good, i got to stop and put a post-it there or, a, or I mark it with a pen or whatever it is. And I've found in the writers that I like, people like James Salter or Robertson Davies, they do that through analogy, through metaphor, through this and that. So I guess I'm just stealing that thunder. This book, too, it, it, it offers a really a sophisticated look at, at you know human psychology. And I wanted to, to talk to you about this. Uh, this reminds me of, of uh, and if somebody like, I, say, I guess, like Eckhart Tolle decided to not, abandon writing straightforward kind of self-help books or, or books, you know, that are operate as nonfiction or spiritual guidance, but instead decided to cast that as a romantic, spiritual, metaphysical thriller. That's kind of what this book really strikes me as, and it's very discursive in that way. I, I, I think that the, I read Tola's book, The Power of, Power of Now, um, about three years ago. When I was just starting to think about this this novel, and um, it had a, it had a strong effect on me because I think that, unfortunately, people think of self help books or new age books and this and that as being flat and just sort of Oprah y when when in fact some of them are 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 quite profound and and can can be of great help to us, and one of the things that that, that Tola hammered on in 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 that book, which I think is so important, is the idea of how we don't consider ourselves as, as, as multiple personalities. We think of ourselves as one who's making decisions now, and whether it's a right decision or it's a wrong decision, it's just one me who's making that decision. It's just not true. It's just not, you know, who you are at 7 o'clock in the morning is very different from who you are at 7 o'clock in the evening. You've gone through things, and you've experienced things, and... And you've had arguments with yourself throughout the day. Do I do I want to cut and go home, or do I should I go to the gym? Or and who are you arguing with? You're arguing with yourself. Who are you arguing with within yourself? The lazy guy, the tired guy, the driven guy, the do your homework guy. All of these people are talking to each other at all times. And Tola simply says, in 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 his perspective, the now takes place with these people arguing with one another. Who who's going to win the argument? From day to day, it's different. Well, one of the things that I, I think that uh, supernatural 
so-called fiction does and horror fiction and genre fiction does, and this is something that you take, a, I think, beyond any of those limits, is to allow us to externalize and, and uh, these kind of conflicts, inner conflicts, and turn something that otherwise you can't really talk about, something ineffable, to turn it into a plot point. And one of the things I love about this book is that you use characterization and your metaphysical arguments to drive the plot. Could you talk about creating that kind of metaphysically character-driven plot? Well, it's kind of like Richard. It's it, it's to me, it's 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 sort of like the Pompidou Center in in, in Paris. You know, the, you you build the exoskeleton on the outside of, of, of the, the place so that the people are seeing its, its, its bones, so to say, on the out, outside of the skin rather than the inside. I mean, novelists work really hard to kind of hide stuff, and you see only skin, whereas in this context, what I was trying purposely trying to do was turn that, that process the opposite, again, like the Pompidou Center. If you like the Pompidou Center, which a lot of people don't, or that kind of building, you, you respond to the fact of you're saying, hey, they've turned it inside out. That's cool, and and that's one of the things that I'm trying to do with this book. Let's talk a little bit about some of the specifics of the book. Uh, you have a character, Ben Gould. Um, he injures himself, at, and uh, but he doesn't quite die. And one of the there's a lot of uh, I think kind of interesting uh, medical stuff in the background of this book. And could you talk about uh, any research you did to? to bring this, make this stuff seem so real? Because the way you, you toss it out, it's very casual, and it's right out there for us to see. But I think there's a, a, something behind that. Well, I mean, the, the, the thing is that, that, that the, the premise of that part of the book is basically the guy falls down and hits his head and dies. But it doesn't happen. He should have died, as, as is so often the case. If, if you ever talk to a doctor or a paramedic, people in the medical field who deal with this stuff, they'll say when such and such happens, then it is it is inevitable that the process follows through and the heart stops or the brain detaches or whatever it is. And so I wanted something very dramatic that, that it has to be. He has to die, but he doesn't die. And it's not that he, it's not that he comes back from the dead. It's a very big distinction here. You know, it's not one of those kind of spooky things where like he died and he came back. Basically what happened was it's almost like you know his head was severed, but he he continued living. Can't happen, and in this context, it's it's so disturbing to those who are aware of this kind of stuff. And then there's someone else in the book who was supposed to die too through a hideous accident, and they didn't die either. And the medical people are saying this is not possible. It, it, it can't be. You know, if your head is severed, you can't live. I don't use that, but but that's a, as an example. And when I when I was doing research for the book, I, I I talked to a friend of mine who's a doctor, and I talked to a paramedic who does some very, you know, that kind of go to the scene of the accident on the on the freeway, and I said, "What is an absolute this person will die sort of accident?" And they cited two examples, both of which I use in the book. Now, um, when these characters don't die, uh, their lives. Are- quickly change. And one of the things you do is um, to, you detach this novel from time, I think. And you you really mess with time a lot in this novel in a lot of interesting ways. And, and so could you talk about the different ways in which you move us around in time in this novel? Well, I, th- I, I, I keep 
flashing back and flashing forward and this and that. I, I want to purposely disconcert the, the reader so that they don't say, this is a sequential story. You know, they wake up in the morning, they have breakfast, they go to lunch, and then they... I want people to be on edge so that basically they don't really have a balance, which we're, we're used to in our day because we're just used to the way that the day flows. And in this sense, if, if, if I keep you on edge, hopefully, if, if I tell my story well, you'll be paying closer attention to the details. And the details of this book are very, very important because uh, it, it, hopefully, as, as one review says, you keep going, what, 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 ah. And, and if, <laughs> if, if, that's, if that's the case, then I've succeeded. Well, that's actually exactly how I read the book. I, there were many, many times when I was wondering, what is going on here? And then you reveal this to us. Um, one of the things about time travel and this kind of time dilation is that, that this book brings up that the act of remembering something is a form of time travel, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, in, in the book, there's a, there's a section in which several people go back to the, to the greatest moments of their life. And it, the more... Whenever we go back to that prom night or the day we were married or we got the job that we wanted or whatever, it, it, it becomes richer and richer because the details are still within us. We remember it because it was so vitally important to our lives. And in that sense, when we're really deeply involved in that memory, we're, we're, we're definitely not here. We're there. And now this notion of the, the best moment in our lives, I, I'm wondering if you recall there's a Harlan Ellison story. Uh, where oh, it, it's one of the one of the most striking stories I ever remember because it's terrifying. Uh, in which a man wants to know he's looking for the best moment of his life, and he goes through a, a great deal of trouble to raise this demon. And this demon shows him the best moment of his life, and it's when he was twelve years old, and he knows it's all downhill from there. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I've 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 said that in in, in another book. One of the great tragedies of our lives is we don't know when it's at its best, you know, only in retrospect. So, for example, here you are 27 and, and you know, you've got a new girlfriend and you've got a job that, that, that's pretty good and, and some money in your pocket and this and that. Little do you know that that's it. You know, it'll never get any better than this. And, and you think, well, I, I kind of like the girl and I, I'm making some money, but I wish I made more money or I wish she were prettier or whatever it is. If you only knew that that right then and there, that was it. And so you better savor it because not that it goes downhill, but it's, it's, um, it's going to change. And unfortunately for you, um, not for the better. Um, each, of the, each moment of our life in your book, we are creating a new self or in each segment of time. And this book a lot is, is trying to get those selves in the same room. <laughs> Line them up. To agree. And you have this great idea, a, a united nations of the self. Yes. I, 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 I go back to something I said earlier, which is basically a lot of the decisions that we make in our day are not the decisions made by Jay Carroll, age so-and-so, as of October, whatever, 20th, 2008. They're made by my 15-year-old self or my 40-year-old self or whatever it is, and I just don't acknowledge that. And, you know, if you do something stupid like, you, you, you know, you read a sign that says wet paint and you stick your finger in it and your finger gets covered with, with paint, would a 40-year-old person do that? No. A 6-year-old would do that. So that, you know, then you're embarrassed that your finger's covered with paint and you don't know where to, to, to wipe it off and all this stuff. It's all 6-year-old stuff. 
but it just happens to be a 47-year-old man who does it. And the same, you know, you say something embarrassing or, or you say something very witty or this and that, and you're actually feeling kind of drunk today. But the wittiness comes from the person who was, you know, six months ago and they were at their best. This is, it's reminiscent. There's an old Roxy Music song called Editions of You where he says, you know, I, I hope something st- special will step into my life, another fine edition of you. And it's, we, there are just these various editions of us. And not all of us, the versions of us, are friendly to ourselves. Oh, no, are not we? at all. Not at all. I mean, it, it, this, is, this is a really important part of it. There are parts of us that don't like us. You know, they're, 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 they're self destructive or they're lazy or they're, Kind of angry for no reason, and this and that, and they certainly play part of the part part in the 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 the, the larger picture of who we are. And um, I don't like to admit that there are parts of me that don't like me, but it's true they don't. You know, and it's not that, that, that they're they're light. You know, like like a Roadrunner cartoon. You know, they're lighting a bomb underneath my chair, but at the same time, they they, they don't work for my my benefit. No. Now, as you. Uh did you just write this book? I, I got to ask. Did you just write this book from beginning to end, pretty much straight through? Absolutely, yeah. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing because it's got such a a, a very complicated uh, metaphysical plot. And, and I wanted to talk to you about the the metaphysics of this book because you, you're talking about things that are really the province, or usually the province, of religion. We have God, we have death, the afterlife, ghosts. You you talk about these metaphysical concepts. But you do it without um, the taint of religion, I, I'll say. Uh, and you do it in very clean prose. Could you talk about scrubbing your prose, because it does seem very scrubbed, to, to uh, express these metaphysical concepts? Well, people always laugh at the way that I write, which is backwards. I, when, when I write a book, I, I, I either I, you could define it as doing one draft or, you, or doing four. And, and, and the process is this. I write it very quickly on the, on the computer just to get the ideas down. Then I handwrite it quickly in a book. And then I handwrite it again very, very carefully. And my wife always calls them illuminated manuscripts. Um, I slow the process down. And by slowing that process down, I, I, I dump a lot of stuff that I don't think is, is either cogent or, or, or applicable. Or you, you can write better prose than that stuff. And so when I finish that nice-looking manuscript, I just go back to the computer, make the quick changes, and send the book to the po- uh, to the to the publisher. Wow. Um, a- as this book unfolds, we we get a really interesting uh, sense of of menace. It starts out kind of quirky and fun, but as it moves forward, it really becomes, uh, I think, a- an apocalypse. Ecalyptic novel. It's about the end of the world as we know it. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And 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 apocalypse applies on both a large and a small scale. I mean, madness is 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 the apocalypse. You know, a person who is who is, I mean, walking around San Francisco in the last couple of days, and I see these deeply mad people. I mean, is that not apocalyptic? For them, it certainly is. So, in this sense, you you have the apocalypse of the self kind of coming apart, and you also have the the, the larger thing, which is how do I fit into a world that, that that often is very confusing. Yeah, I like this idea of of a personal apocalypse that that um, each of us has this an end of our own world. 
Well, it, 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 you know, if, 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 you read, if you read the book of Revelations and then you bring it down to the microcosm of the self, it's completely applicable. I mean, and I'm, I'm you know, dumped the religion, just, just you know, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse and all this stuff. And basically, you know, what is depression? I mean, real serious depression is certainly one of the four horsemen or, or confusion or, or rage or whatever this stuff is. If, 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 you, if you microcosm it, it's totally applicable. Wow, now that's interesting. Uh, one of the things that it's interesting that you'd even know that because one of the your characters says at one point that she's doing trying to seek solace after having this 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 tragic accident, and she goes to the Bible and she says the Bible is no comfort to her. No, it's a bore. There's, there's, I mean that that's the thing is that is that people very often who are seeking solace for for profound things think if I go to this instruction manual, it'll tell me where to turn or what screw to undo or whatever it is. But as, as is true with most instruction manuals, it's just confusing, you know, and whether it be the, the Bible or the Quran or the, or the whatever. I mean, some people find solace there, but a lot of the time they find solace because they're told to find solace. Or they, they don't actually. I, when, I, when I was teaching uh, literature, I once taught the, the Old Testament, and the kid said it's boring. I mean, it's full of begats and it's full of some angry people saying, do this. It doesn't make you feel, oh, that can answer my questions. Now, <laughs> um, but, well, if the Bible's not going to answer questions, uh, how, where will we find the, the answers to the, to the kind of questions that you pose in this book? I think the Bible, for some people, does. I mean, people in my family have been very religious, and they have found great solace in the Bible and, and a direction. I'm certainly not discounting it. But for, there is no general instruction manual, I don't think. You know, and I think that's one of the reasons why world wars take place or clashes of cultures, because they see things so differently. If you do it this way, you'll be okay. No, I disagree. If you do it that way, you'll be okay. I tend to think that the only uh, kind of universal is in, is in human emotion. I mean, it's easier for me to, to fall in love with a Japanese woman or an Albanian woman and reach an understanding with them than it is for me to... Uh, turn to chapter 3 in Matthew and understand what they're talking about but but it is it is a profound it is a profound human experience which is what you know the third chapter of Matthew is supposed to be now you talked a little bit earlier about the details being very important in this book and i would say that's certainly the case um and one of the things is is that while this book deals with a lot of the the metaphysics of, of you know, who we are in our different past lives. It also points to the fact that we live in the empire of the senses. Oh, I think so. I think so. Um, I don't think that <clears throat> that everything is senses. This, this, you know, if you go back to Kant and all those guys, they say, you know, there's more than just eating a potato chip. But at the same time, if we discount it as being trivial or, or, or less apt or valid than others, I think that we're doing ourselves a disservice. One of the things you, you talk about is um, how you can use, we can use physical work and cooking and food to distract us from ourselves and give us a little bit of distance. I think that in, in one of the books that I wrote, From the Teeth of Angels, one of the, one of the characters says, when, 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 we, when, when human beings think about death, we get afraid. But the greatest victory that a, that a human being can, can achieve is to have such a full life that you never think about death. 
and and how do we live our lives? We do things. We cook. We love. We go to the movies. We build a bench or whatever it is. And the same thing here. It's not a dist- you know the distraction is a is a kind of negative term. If I'm doing what I'm loving, that's what living is really about. It's it's being committed fully to the moment. I mean, for example. When you're kissing your, your, your partner and having a good time at it, why would you be thinking about death or why would you be thinking about paying your bills or whatever it is? It's, 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 it's participating fully in the experience. And whether it be, I mean, people I know who love to cook go into the kitchen like some people go to, go to the swimming pool. That is their escape from a kind of tedium which their lives are, unfortunately, whereas when they go into the swimming pool or they go into the kitchen, the tedium disappears because they're absolutely loving every minute of the act, whatever it is that they're doing, carpentry or riding their bicycle or, or, or playing computer games. This is, this is, this is the definition of, of, of a contented life, fully living fully in the moment. The kind of details you pull up in this book about cooking, uh, about Russian folk songs, um, are are really interesting. Do you, when you start, when you're writing, do you like have to stop and go? Now I have to investigate cooking, or yes, do you, okay, so absolutely. And when, well, you know, at, at one point in the in the in the book, a guy starts to sing, and at the time that that that, that I came to that section, I was I was listening to some music called Russian table music which is, you know, people who live in Russia, particularly in the old days, they had no entertainment and the winters are long and cold. And so they would all sit in the kitchen and sing. And it became so sophisticated that it's now, you know, they, 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 they go, to, go to Carnegie Hall and, and groups of Russian table music singers come over and, and do it. And it, it's very, very beautiful stuff. And I found that so fascinating. I said, that's got to go in the book. Now, you, you live in Vienna. Um, you're American by I birth? Am. Why are you living in Vienna? I went over as a teacher um, 30 years ago, and um, I think home is where you're most comfortable, and I've always been very comfortable in Vienna. I came back to America in the 90s to write films, but uh, I just missed living in Europe. And I, the people have always said, oh, you're an expatriate. I go, no, I'm just an American not living in America. That's really yeah, interesting. Um, but don't you find, I mean, they speak, German there? Is that, yeah. Is that right? Or do you speak German fluently? Yeah. Okay, well, then that's going to solve that problem. Um, a, as a, a, a writer, one of the things that you have to do, especially when you're creating this kind of book, is um, you can't have complete chaos. You have to create, like, a set of rules for the way things work, and then then you can break those rules. Could right. you talk about creating those rules? And then as you often do in your books, and then you certainly do in this one, uh, proceeding to break them? Yes. I mean, you, you can't... When I, when I was teaching creative writing, I said to the kids, you can have a book in which the, you have dragons, but if you turn the page and the dragon has two heads, you're breaking the rules. You can't do that. There has to be a, a kind of... I don't even know if this word ex- exists, but a linearity to it. I mean, you can break that rule, but the, the breaking of the rule has to make sense to the reader. So in this sense, you know, in my books, I have talking dogs and, and ghosts and all this stuff. But hopefully, if the book is successful, the reader says, okay, I can accept that. And and if I break that rule, suddenly, you know, the ghost can't talk or, or, or the dog can't talk, then it it, it comes organically from, from the plot. It's not just this kind of pot that's thrown in from off stage to, uh, to, to mix things up. Speaking of dogs, they play a critical role in 
all of your books and have f- from the beginning. So, and we talked a little bit about this last time when we talked. And you told me then, and something that's just stuck in my mind ever since, was that dogs are, are like angels. Yes, I always think of dogs as minor angels, and, and, and I'm not being facetious in that. I, I think, for example, dogs love us completely. They forgive us immediately. If you want to play catch at 4 o'clock in the morning, okay. If you want to go for a walk uh, at 3 o'clock in the morning, okay. If you step on their heads, that's okay. I mean, all these marvelous qualities, characteristics, which if a person had them, we'd say that they were angelic. We'd say that they were a wonderful person. But because it's a dog, we kind of dismiss it as being sweet. But if you look, if you look at them closely, I mean, they had these qualities, which I, I, I wish I had. So in that sense, they're minor angels. And uh, you also, in this novel, you finally, I, I don't think you've written about cats before. <laughs> so you get to cats and mice, and I'm wondering what it felt for you to, like, to, uh, to finally get to cats. Had you had requests to write about cats? Well, my wife likes cats, and we've had them on and off. And I said, the only cat I like is a cat that's like a dog. You know, you call it, and it comes, and it's, it's your pal and all this stuff. But... Uh, in this book, I write about cats, but I'm sneering at them as I write. <laughs> now, uh, the other thing about this book is it's a very, very funny. Um, there's, there's lots of humor in it. Um, when you're writing, do you have a, a, a kind of a, a mechanism for, for doing the humor, a, a kind of tension and release? Not, not really. I, I, I mean, the, the books are organic. I mean, if, if, if you're writing along and something funny needs to be said, then say it. Um, I, I usually, I usually can tell that something is successful, at least as far as I was concerned, if I kind of half smile. If I don't, if I write a quote funny line and I don't smile, it's probably not very funny. But if I write a funny line and I kind of half smile, then, then I think it works. And the other thing your books are a chonka block with is, um, I guess, uh, pithy sayings. You know that there there's lots of like real moments, things that could just come right out of a, 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 a Eckhart Tolle book or or something. Um, as you're writing, uh, these seem to emerge from the characters sometimes, just from the from the the people you're writing about. Yeah, I, well, I, the thing is that I think that, that all of us have revelations throughout our day. You know, with the, there's, there's a passage in this book in which I, I say something like, all of us have within us cem- cemeteries of old lovers. Right, I love that idea. Yeah, and, and, and I, the idea came to me one day when a friend of mine was musing about an old girlfriend, and I realized that he still loved her, um, you know, 15 years later, and, and couldn't tell if he was glad that he hadn't gone with her, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I said, that, you know, the thought came to me, you know, we're all full of, 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 you know, there's this kind of little plot in which there are gravestones of our past loves and some we visit frequently and some we couldn't care, you know, about that Susie who caused trouble. I don't care about her. And her gravestone is overgrown and the stone has fallen. But then there's Jennifer and oh boy, you know, she haunts me. And so in that sense, I said, this this applies to this character because he's going through a breakup and uh, he can't get over this. You know, in his cemetery, there's this one plot that he just can't stop visiting. 
Well, let's talk about some of these characters. We've got Ben Ben Gould and German Landis. One thing you do very well is this book has a kind of a, a, a small cast in it, and I think that's a really effective means for storytelling for you. Yeah, I, I, I would prefer to... I, I mean, I, I'm in, in absolute awe of these people who, first of all, write very long books. You know, 500, 600, 700-page books are just beyond me. And the ones in which they have 15 characters all interrelating and all this stuff, it's just... It's like a monster truck to me. You know, I stand and look at it towering over me in awe. I just couldn't do it. Um, I'm a bumper car guy. Uh, and so in that sense, if if I have a... If I have a, a troupe of people, you know, kind of ensemble cast, I can work, I can dig deeper with them than, than if I'm trying to take care of 12 people at once. Although the book that I'm writing now has, has five people in it, so, you know, maybe things are changing. Uh, your books have this kind of really um, stripped-down feel to it. I yes. mean, what it's for how complicated they seem um, when we go back and consider all the various concepts you've, you've, you've given us and the insights and the perspectives. In the moment of reading them from page to page, they're very simple. It's a, they're really quick reads, but they, they stay with us. Could you talk about using these very, and it seems like you use very simple elements. You know, we've got a ghost. We, ghosts can talk to dogs and there's an afterlife, and there's a couple people who are in love, and that's you know, in many ways, most of the ingredients of this book. Seen it before, but the the way you uh, um, take these very simple building blocks, and, and it, it's like you you build the 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 Eiffel Tower out of Tinker Toys. <laughs> well, you know, the the Stephen King said there, you know, there there are writers who are putter inners, and there are writers who are taker outers. I'm a taker outer. And and I, I constantly find myself saying as I'm writing something, is this is this germane? Should this be here? Can does does it move the story forward? Does it does it en, enrich the, the the characters or whatever? If it's not, dump it. Because um, I remember very vividly when I wrote my first book, The Land of Laughs. I came up with this brilliant beginning, this character, and, 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 and I was so proud of myself. And my first editor said, you know, it's a wonderful beginning. Cut it. And I was horrified and heartbroken. I said, why? He said, because it doesn't apply to the story. It's a detour which we shouldn't make. And I never forgot that. You know, no matter how great or clever or pithy or whatever it is, the character or the saying or the passage or whatever, if it's not germane, get rid of it because you're just showing off there. And showing off is not going to make the book any better. You know, I wanted to talk to you in a sense about your, your notion of what a novel is. Um, it seems, I think, different from from any other no, anybody else's notion of a novel. Do you think about uh, the novel as a whole and how maybe your novel is, say, different from I don't guess maybe a Henry James novel or Gives You a Wish Girl or something like that? I mean, I don't. Um, I the the thing the, the the trouble that my books have in America or overseas it's it's different. Um, is it because people cannot classify them? or categorize them. What they do is they try to slam titles onto them, but it's like putting a size 10 foot into an 11 shoe or a 9 shoe, and the foot is always wiggling because it's uncomfortable. And so in that sense, um, because the books are not categorizable, um, 
I, I, there's a kind of resentment that goes on in the sense that, you know, Carol writes this kind of book, but it's failed this kind of book. When it, which when to me, I don't write that kind of book at all. So don't put it over there as a failed example of that because that's not what it is. It's like putting, you know, apples in with the bananas. Um, and so in that sense, to me, a, a, a book is, it, it's a great, it's a great line that, you know, C.S. Lewis said a long time ago, write the kind of books that you would like to read. And whatever those books are, that the kind of things that, that, that hold you, that's, that's what I want to write. Um, it- there's a couple of uh, oh, there's, I have to add. There's there's some phrases in this book that just absolutely are devastating. The perfume times. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, if if if, if I come up with a line that's successful, you already knew that. I'm I'm just reminding you of it. You know, if 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 you if you respond to to, to the perfume times, it's not like I'm telling it to you new. You just I'm just. I'm just saying to you, put the, together these two images, and when you put them together like a like a, a, a binary weapon, of course, of course, that makes sense. I had that experience with with James Salter, the, the American writer. You know, Salter will say something, and I go, "Oh my God, that's so beautiful," and then I realize it's beautiful because it's my sensibility just reordered. That's that's a really interesting observation because it really does seem like your books really. Uh, reorder, I think, our, our very notion of what to expect out of a out of a novel, which must, in because they're so profoundly different. I think maybe that's why there's a perception of them as horror because we look at it. We have we come to a book with a set of expectations, and generally you go right through those expectations <laughs> in a way that some people must find kind of profoundly unsettling. Well, I, I'm the, the the people who write negative reviews in my books almost always say they're failed x and when i when i see that i go but that's not what i that's not what the book's about it's not it's not a failed fan, it's fantasy novel because it's not a fantasy novel it may have fantasy tropes in it you know there may be elements of fantasy in it but it's it's no more fantasy than 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 you know salad niçoise is 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 a steak you know and so you can't you can't compare the two and i was reading a review this morning in, in which a person said this book would have been good if it had had apples and oranges and peaches. I don't want apples and oranges and peaches. That's not the kind of book that I intended. I I did want to mention uh, there's a couple of uh, references and influences, perhaps influences, perhaps references. Uh, Thornton Wilder, Our Town. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the great part, I mean, it's a wonderful play, but, but, but that that famous last scene in which the woman comes back after she dies and looks at one day and early in her life and she realizes the enormity of how beautiful it is and stuff. And uh, that, that had a very big influence in, in writing the book. In, in fact, one of the things your books remind us of is how when we're plagued by these other selves, they take us out of, I guess, the Eckhart Tolle now and we we're unable to understand just how wonderful every moment we are living might actually be. I mean, the the the, the, the sad thing about all this is is that usually delight only comes in memories. You know, I mean, you might have a wonderful meal and and you're sitting at the table going, ah, this is great. But generally speaking, that wonderful meal only comes to you in true context after it's over. You know, your your best friends were there, or you had the pretty girl, or 
you just earned the raise and the food was great and the wine was great. At the time that you're having it, it's nice, but you don't realize it's great until two days or two months later. And this gets back to this notion of ghosts and being haunted um, by by the things that that we remember. Yes, I think I think that we all are haunted. I mean, you know, the people who, you know, Bruce Springsteen wrote that song "Glory Days" about the guy who, who was a great football star and it never got any better than that. And if that's not a ghost, I don't know. You know, it's not Casper. It's not a sheet over a head or something, but it, it, it's haunting. You know what I mean? You just, you can't get away from it. It has an enormous effect on your now, and uh, it, it, it kind of bends you to its curve. Um, the other uh, book you mentioned that I think is really interesting because I think it, it's very different, at least in, in my memory from, from your books, in some ways, is uh, the Alexandria Quartet by Lawrence Durrell, which was, I remember reading that, and they just really, those books actually haunted me. Well, the, I mean, the, the, the wonderful thing about the Alexandria Quartet is, is how sensual they are, and it's not sexual, although that's part of it. It's just you, you, you can smell it, you can taste it, you are there, and it, that's achieved because Durrell stresses so much the use of the senses through all of the characters uh, throughout. And, and I remember when I read that when I was in college and I just, it was, it, was, it was enlightening to me because you could use that kind of sensuality to not only move a story, but to create a universe which was completely unfamiliar before you'd read it. Uh, and those kind of uh, details, uh, you also pack in those kind of details and, and use those to keep us in, in the now, in the, 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 the moment. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, one of the things that, that, that's very important to me when I'm writing is to give you a... You can smell the air. You can, you, you can, you can taste the, the plum pudding that the person's just put in their mouth or whatever it is. Because if, if I've done that successfully, then you're sitting at the... If you can taste the pudding, then you're sitting at the table with them. Um, could you talk about the relationship of... The experience we have reading your book or, or any book that really moves us and, and the, the, to, the relations of that, of that experience to our memories and the, the different additions of you that we all experience. I think that, that, that life is a palimpsest, you know, layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. And some of the layers are, 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 are paper thin and others are actually rather thick. And they don't necessarily have to be profound. I mean, the fact that a book that you read when you were nine could be a, th- a very thick memory because of the fact it, 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 it was such a perfect time for you to be reading it and, and it had resonance and all this stuff. Whereas the, the, the love relationship you had that you thought would ruin your life six months later, you couldn't care less about it. But it is a palimpsest. That there is this kind of... Kind of the, 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 the French have a pastry called Milfeuille, you know, a, a thousand leaves. And I think of our lives as that kind of thousand, thousand leaves. And after a while, you know, you, you, like a geologist, you stand back and you look at the sediments and you say, oh, yeah, there's that period and there's that period and all this stuff. It, you know, it, in, the, in the end, it ends up pretty thick. But, but there's not always, it's not always easy to tell which layers are thick and which are thin until afterwards. You know, you alluded to coming to the United States in the '90s to to write novels, which is or films, which is interesting. Could you talk a little bit about that experience? I was um, a producer 
hired me to write a, a, a screenplay of my book after silence and and they wanted to oversee it so I came to California thinking I'd be here a month um, and then it just you know I finished that and then someone else offered me another project and all this and that and and the thing that happened was that uh, none of the work w- typically none of the work was ever made and after two years I realized I, you know nothing had been done and I hadn't written any books and I said not that I'd wasted two years but I you know I came to the the very common conclusion, I'm a book writer who writes movies now and then, not vice versa. So I better get back to the to the real business at hand, which is to write books. And, and you went back to, to Vienna to do that? Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's that's interesting. Um, you say you're writing a book now. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what you're I, doing? I, I don't know what it's about yet. And, and very often that's the case. You know, if, if you ask me when I was writing Ghost in Love, I'd say it's a love triangle, and I don't know in, anything more than that. Usually, what happens is that you, to, I often start with characters. You know, you'll have these people, and you go, "What's going on with them? Where are they? What what's their interrelationship, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And then you 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 build out from there. So what I'm doing now is I'm just getting familiar with the characters and and where geographically they live. Well, let's talk a little bit about character. Um, when you create these characters do you have do they live in your mind as separate do they have little lives in your mind do they run around and do things that we don't know about in the book no I mean I I, 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 I don't I don't think that way I mean when I sit down to work I work and then when I get up from the desk it goes to sleep or you know screensaver you know and and the characters kind of freeze in mid mid motion until I go to work again I mean, I know that there are some writers who, you know, that Balzac was supposed to have conversations with his characters. You know, he'd be at the cafe having a long conversation with no one. But if you asked him who he was talking to, it would be, you know, Dr. Gascon. But I, I, I don't function that way. Um, and you also do a, a lovely job at creating these kind of uh, really odd supernatural Creatures and supernatural antagonists. Um, I, I'm thinking of Mr. Parrish and, and the Verses in in this book. Um, could you talk about uh, creating these kind of uh, odd? They're very odd and original forms of supernatural manifestation. We've never seen anything like this before. Um, in, in this book specifically, what I did was <clears throat> took took normal things, bums for one, and dogs for another, and then put them into the Cuisinart of my brain and came up with, you know, this, hopefully this strange thing, which kind of you recognize, but you don't recognize at the same time. Um, I've always been fascinated by bums or homeless people. And wherever I am, whatever city I am, I, I always watch them and see the differences from city to city. And I've always wanted to write about one. And so I created this character named Matthew Parrish, who's... Uh, He's pretty creepy, but but not in the in the way that that most homeless people are. There's there's another dimension to him, and Virtus, <clears throat> which are the kind of earless, semi dogs in the book, came from the fact that I've been surrounded by dogs for the past thirty years. So I better put them in someplace. <laughs> uh, the other thing I have to ask is, you have this great notion at the the beginning of this book uh, of. There being a kind of a, a system of the of life and death and afterlife and what happens that you liken what's happening in unfold the events that are unfolding in the book to to a computer virus. 
Yeah, I, I, the, the, when, when this guy doesn't die, the, his, his ghost asks the angel of death, what, what happened? And the angel of death says very kind of blandly, oh, there's a glitch in the computer system. We'll work it out. And the ghost gets fierce. He says, I thought you guys were omniscient. How could you, you know, mess this up? Yeah, well, you know, computers, they, they glitch now and then. <laughs> um, and, and I think one of the things about this book is that it's about the need that we all have to take responsibility for ourselves and our actions and to take control of our lives. I think that, I think that we live in an age in which it's easy not to because there's, there's so many ways to kind of pass off the blame or the responsibility or the whatever to others or other systems or whatever it is. You know, I'm, I'm, I can now say I missed the plane for 15 reasons, half of them human, half of them mechanical. And I don't think that, that that sort of thing is good for the soul because after a while you don't know where you are in all of that. Are you, are you a lazy person who used to be responsible? Are you a responsible person who just makes mistakes now and then, this and that? So that if you don't have that kind of sense of responsibility for who you are, what you do, what you say, uh, it can it can cloud your vision of, of of not only who you are but who you want to be. And only if we are responsible will we get to be where who we want to absolutely, be. Absolutely, absolutely. I've been speaking with Jonathan Carroll. His new book is The Ghost in Love. Thank you for joining me, Jonathan. You're welcome. Both rats and cats have uncommon senses of smell, but use them for distinctly different purposes. Rats are down-to-earth, nuts-and-bolts smellers. They sniff with the air only to detect imminent danger, food, or the potential mate. Right now is enough for them and the only thing that matters. If a male's horny and desires a certain female that recently gave birth, he'll eat her young and solve the inconvenience that way. Life is tough for a rat. Get used to it. Use your nose to find what's important, get it, and then get out, because everybody else hates you and wants you gone. No animal can smell danger or a threat faster or better than a rat. Pilot knew this when he called on them to help. He also knew, however, that he had to supplement their tunnel vision pragmatism with the aestheticism of poets, and that's why he'd put out a calling all cars to any cats that happened to be in the neighborhood and willing to help. Cats smell the air the way professional wine tasters sample wine. They sip it in small bits and then wish it around in their heads while thinking about it. Only after due consideration do they exhale. Both kinds of animals can smell and distinguish many different elements contained within one slip of air. But rats aren't interested in making those distinctions if they don't lead to immediate gain. Cats take individual odors so seriously that sometimes they'll pretend to be cleaning themselves thoroughly when in truth they're taking time to mull over a smell before coming to a conclusion about it. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.